Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Hey there, welcome to episode number 33 of my podcast, Flavors Unknown, where I interview Chef Harry Cameron from Amuse and Grandpa Mac, both located in Delaware. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you so much for listening today. If you are new to the show, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I interview trending chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scene, share with you some exciting locations, and find out which new flavors, should I say flavors unknown, that they are experimenting with. My website is flavorsunknown.com. Last week, my guest was the two Michelin star Chef Gabriel Kreuter in Manhattan, and you can find the show notes on the episode page of the website. Make sure to subscribe to the show as you do not want to miss any future episodes that are coming out soon. If you are on Instagram or Facebook, you can follow us at Flavors Unknown. On today's episode, we are talking about the cuisine from the Mid-Atlantic region with Chef Harry Cameron. He is from Delaware, exactly from Rehoboth Beach. He has been three-time James Beard Award nominee and Rising Star 2018 by Star Chefs. In fact, this recording was done back in October during the International Chef Congress from Star Chefs in Brooklyn, New York, where Chef Harry Cameron did a hands-on workshop on fermentation and a series of demos at the Still Light booth. So, hi, Chef. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. It's early here in, uh, at Star Chef ICC in, in Brooklyn, but thank you very much for being on uh, Flavors Unknown. I appreciate that. So happy to be here, for sure. Thank you. So, you got the James Beard Rising Star, yeah, Chefs in 2013 then Best Chef Mid-Atlantic in 15 and 16, and you earn a Star Chef's Rising Stars Award in 2018. So obviously you have your flagship, like the restaurant Amuse, but I was intrigued that you have two fast casual restaurants called Grandpa Mac that you have opened with your brother. So what was your motivation behind the concept? Yeah, so Amuse has been in business for... Eight years on Mother's Day, I had a 10-year dream to open a restaurant before I was 30. So I did it when I was 29. And in the first 18 months, I got nominated for a Rising Star Chef. That was something that was very interesting because we were cooking food that was for us and food that we thought really represented seasonal regional Delaware. And we didn't really think anybody was paying attention. You know, it was a shoestring budget and, you know, no PR to speak of other than our smile and our good food. <laughs> it was something where it became what it became. So, you know, fast forward, say five years in or four or five years in, my younger brother was actually on the West Coast and was getting out of the business that he was in. And he said, Hey, Hari, how do you feel about a mac and cheese restaurant? And, uh, you know, he's an artist and, you know, he's my partner and my front of house manager. His name is Orion Cameron. And I said, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a, could be, quite heavy and we're at the beach. Is it the right move? And I said, well, let me think about it. So I thought about it and I looked at where businesses in this country are going and what the American diner, what people want. And it's like, I said, if we can make everything from scratch, if we can keep integrity in the food, if we can keep the price point where a family and an everyday person could eat it and mm -hmm. it's something they could enjoy, it could be something I could get behind. So I started looking at it and then I was, you know, I always wanted to get a pasta extruder. I'd used them before, but I'd never owned one. So I, you know, purchased a pasta extruder. So at Grandpa Mac, we make all of the pastas in-house and fresh pasta is great. I do work now for Arco Boleno Pasta Extruding Company, and I've helped shoot their training videos and done different things with mm -hmm. them. But, um, you know, the fresh pasta cooks in two minutes, a minute and a half, depending on the noodle, and we can sauce it and... We make everything from scratch and we serve a food. We have panini sandwiches and salads and soups. So, you know, it's still, and the guests can really choose what 
dining experience they want. If they say, okay, I take this pasta, this sauce, this, and they can make it how they want, or they can have preset pastas. And we do tomato sauce and pesto and roasted garlic oil and cacio pepe alfredo style sauce and some... So it's fast, casual, but it's not fast food, correct? It's it, like it, and quite, that's it. quality food. And that's it. It doesn't... If you think you're going to get it, and you know, there's no drive through you order at the counter and yeah. we get a number and we bring it to you. And yeah, I mean, we're doing real cooking, so it doesn't, it's not instant, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it still has, it's homemade pasta. So it has integrity and soul. And you know, those are the foods that, um, you know, I was, my father was a hippie setting up meditation centers. Mm -hmm. My mother was a server at the time. Now she's a physical therapist, but at the time, you know, the spaghetti dinner, the pasta was a go-to for us. And it's kind of, Comfort in the right way, I think. Okay. So. But is it an homage to your grandfa grandfather as well? So my great-grandfather, okay. his name was Mervyn Cameron McCurdy. Okay. He lived till he was 97 years old. He was a postmaster in <laughs> Fairlawn, New Jersey. And he, he was our grandpa Mac. He was our grandpa ah, Mac okay. McCurdy. And since he was such a generous person, he was giving to Planned Parenthood in the 60s when I first started. Amnesty International, World Wildlife. He was always wow. giving to, he built the park in the town and he was so generous. So we thought we'd pay homage to him. We thought we would honor him. Mm -hmm. So my younger brother being the artist, he actually drew a logo, which he said, it looks kind of like Grandpa Mac and looks kind of like me. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's, he was such a generous person. We thought it only okay. fitting that. So yeah, at Grandpa Mac, we, we serve the food that is helpful. We have one pasta machine dedicated to gluten-free pasta production. Mm -hmm. So all of our sauces are made gluten-free by design. So even if you're eating this way, you know, we're only seeing 10% of our total sales gluten-free, but we didn't want to exclude anybody. We have a vegan mushroom ragu. We have a vegan mac and cheese. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in our area, vegans, people with dietary restrictions, especially with faster food, mm -hmm. are underserved. So really, this is the concept where I can create dishes that I can stand behind that have love and integrity, but I'm also not there serving the food every day. It's sure. something that is very consistent mm -hmm. and um, an entry level cook who has a little bit of skill can go into the job and really learn the business before they maybe go on to a, a different and you, spot. And you have two of them, right? Currently we have two. We're actually going to close this small first one after five years okay. because the lease is up and mm -hmm. we're actually going to open up in a brewery in a neighboring town, a large facility where we'll be able to serve mac and cheese, but there'll be weddings and events. And in the brewery, it is great. We have a really great opportunity. And, you know, we had a lot of ambition to grow very quickly in the rate that we put them up. But at the end of the day, my little brother has a two-year-old, almost a three-year-old daughter, and I have a four-year-old and a newborn. Yeah, newborn so yeah. it's kind of like, we don't want our quality of life to suffer. So it's kind of like, After these years, we're approached often, but if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And uh, location's important, and um, it's good. You know, it's kind of like we'll probably do the next one next year, and then we'll keep rolling okay. out from there. So, is the uh, ambition to turn it into like a franchisee? Uh, yeah, so the franchise or franchisee structure kind of scares me. You know, to take our hands off of it that mm -hmm. much. Like I said. There's a lot of real cooking there, and it's it's hard to set those things. So who knows down the road what it would be? I think we're going to be owning multiple units before we look at any kind of partnership, or you know, who, who knows what happens. And outside of Delaware, or, yeah, outside yeah. of Delaware, you know, I think that um, when we look at the model of where you know we we compare ourselves to kind of that you know Panera price point mm -hmm. and kind of the Chipotle accessibility, and we look where they've built. And where they've been successful, DC is a really great market for that. We're very centrally located in the Mid-Atlantic. Philadelphia is close by, so we've looked at spaces in Philadelphia. We've been approached by a lot of things, but again, I think smart growth is best. So let's talk a little bit about um, the muse. On the website, we can read like a place for guests to come to enjoy a taste of progressive Mid-Atlantic cuisine. So Mid-Atlantic locally grown, so it seems to be essential of everything of what you're doing at Amuse. So can you explain to us what it represents to you and why is it so important? You know, many years ago when I was cooking before Farm to Table, 
became to be the buzzword coin catchphrase <laughs> of everything. We were cooking from our farmers because that was the best product we could find. You know, it was like the, the most beautiful things and working with people who really cared about the things they were, they were growing. And Delaware has some really old rural pockets, but it also has some really new sections as well. And where we're located is we're flanked by all this beautiful farmland and the Atlantic Ocean. So yeah, what I always want my food to be is no matter how progressive it is, I always want it to be grounded in the mid-Atlantic, but seasonal and regional. I think Mm -hmm. those things are the most important. Our menu changes often as a fisherman, a farmer, as inspiration comes. It changes as products come in, you know, we're developing things. So it's hyper-seasonal. Yeah, those things are important. I guess the progressive aspect is um, Delaware is such a small state. It was the first state. And when you, you can't really find Delaware recipes, you know, I've gone into historical societies and looked at things and our cuisine has always been very closely related to New Jersey, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. We really can't speak of Delaware cuisine, but we can speak of the cuisine of the Mid-Atlantic. And our Mid-Atlantic is influenced by, it's not Southern cuisine and it's not Northern cuisine. It is Chesapeake Bay, but then we can go up to Philadelphia and you know, we have mm-hmm. wonderful pastures. So, you know, I, we have such beautiful product and beautiful things to highlight and feature. That's really what we try to do. Okay. So we hear a lot at the moment, you know, in, in the U.S. that there is a revival, you know, of the South. Do you think that um, there's, um, you know, the same phenomenon for Mid-Atlantic? I think so. You know, the Southern revival has been in the, the eyesight of the chef and in the, you know, in the eyesight of the masses for a while. You know, we speak of Southern food. We also really often speak of food from New England. Mm-hmm. We think of Louisiana cuisine, but the Mid-Atlantic is sometimes overlooked as a cuisine. But I think we have a lot of history and rich heritage. And I think that there are a lot of chefs in D.C. right now. You know, D.C., Michelin just came to D.C. Mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And I think there are some really great chefs in D.C. and Philadelphia and, and Maryland, Virginia, that are really putting their flag down and, and making Mid-Atlantic cuisine their own and are looking to what the here and now of it could be. So, And how would you define like the staples, you know, about the cuisine from Mid-Atlantic? When I like, you know, like maybe the key ingredients, like the key maybe recipes as well. Yeah. So when we look at the Mid-Atlantic, we really are looking again at the, the waterways that we have, the Chesapeake Bay, the tradition of sitting around a table, steaming a big pot of crabs, with Old Bay or J.O. seasoning, mm-hmm. drinking some lighter beer, eating corn, you know, the staples of the summer. You know, I think that when people think of Delaware, they don't really think of crab. You know, it's a Maryland thing, but we have crabs in all of our waters. You know, I take my four-year-old son, we call it chicken necking, where mm-hmm. we actually take the chicken neck and throw it over in the water and just net the crabs. It's a crab lining. And uh, so I think crabs are a staple. Delaware is a state that has more chicken than people. The industrial chicken industry started in Delaware and is across and um, it's actually started in Delaware and in Cornell University. And I used to live in Ithaca, New York mm-hmm. as well. Chickens are definitely a staple of Delaware. Now, there's some iconic dishes. Um, I think for a long time, people thought of American food and people thought of, you know, as you know, it wasn't as high elevated. And I think that's true. I think for a long time the best thing since sliced bread wasn't the best thing for food. And with industrial revolution, I think people kind of started to try to look for easy solutions. But when I look back into like the white house cookbook of, you know, the 1800s, mm-hmm. or when I look back at like some really old cookbooks, you know, I have an extensive cookbook collection. I love to study and read and look at all those things. You know, I have like um, the Maryland way cookbook where it has all these, they really were using forward thinking thought, putting ingredients together. Like I find, um, a recipe of salsa feed, which is oyster root, which is something, it's an ingredient of, you know, Eastern Europe, which came to America and was mm-hmm. used a lot in America, but was forgotten about for a long time. And it's so interesting, like the way that ingredients kind of resurge back and, and become popular. So I guess back to the question, the Mid-Atlantic is seafood. The Mid-Atlantic is chicken. It is lots of different vegetables, I think we think of like New Jersey tomatoes, Delaware tomatoes, corn, 
you know, it's a, it's a fun thing. Also, I think we think of like, since the beginning of the country, how food was preserved. And now as a modern chef, I'm taking a lot of like the fat and the roux out of things. You know, I guess fat is a tool mm -hmm. for flavor. So awesome. if you're using it well, it's fine. But, you know, back in the old days, a lot of these old recipes I see have a lot of flour and butter and things that aren't necessary, mm -hmm. things that kind of get in the way of flavor. So now we're using those kind of flavor profiles and trying to have more laser focus with nope. the food that we put out. Okay. So. Being a progressive you know, chef, as you define yourself, how do you balance this mindset and this interest for like the new techniques and the new ingredients that you have and the fact that you have to adjust your menu for to please your consumers and you want them to come back? So when we first opened the restaurant, we were very progressive. What does that mean? Very progressive. Yeah. So we had five different sections on the menu with small plates mm -hmm. and we were cooking food that was maybe some things more abstract and deconstructed in, in mm -hmm. profile. And we wanted the guests to create their own tasting menu by ordering down the menu. Yeah. Now we're in a place where for half the year we're inundated with people from everywhere. And it's a great thing. You know, it's a, a beach town, you know, sure. we're a block from the ocean And then the rest of the year, it becomes a small town again. So it was great. It was a great thing. But we quickly had to listen to our guests and we had to go to a standard format, you know, after about a year because people are like, I just, you know, a lot of them, the feedback we're getting is they just wanted an entree, a big plate, and they wanted to go out and do whatever they're doing with their nightlife or go to a Were you conflicted day. with this? With this as a, I was, as I was very conflicted. Person? It was, it was difficult. You know, I was young and I was, you know, the young person wants it the way that they want it and mm -hmm. they want to impose their will on it. But so how I did it, I said, okay, then we're going to offer a five and a seven course tasting menu so that guests can, if guests want to come in, have a glass of rosé, eat some cheese, they can do that. They mm -hmm. can sit at the bar and do that. But if they do want a full tour of the seasons, if they want kind of, we can do that as well. So that was kind of my compromise. I still was able to cook food, which was, you know, uh, in Delaware, there's a lot of people, you know, we have a lot of people who come in from DC and New York and who are used to food, which is manipulated ingredients that maybe aren't as common, you mm -hmm. know, but we also have a lot of people who are not those type of diners as well. And, and I think as a chef, And, and being somebody who's in hospitality, we need to find the best way to make people happy and take care of them, Wh whether we need to kind of meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. But I think that when people come into a muse, they know that they can always find something that maybe they didn't think about or a twist. Or I think my food is very grounded in American cuisine. But then again, today I'm going to give a workshop where we're going to make pickles. Mm -hmm. Pickles are very American. We're going to use dill flavor profile. It's going to be a lacto pickle, but the way that we get there is a little different. You know, we're going to actually take, I've been doing a lot of research on the spent beer grain since we're opening up mm -hmm. in a brewery and I'm going to take, we're going to do a traditional Japanese pickling bed called Nukudoku, a Nuka bed. And we're not just going to do it out of rice bran. I don't have rice bran everywhere. I mean, I have a lot of rice bran as well, but <laughs> We're going to do it out of spent beer grains mm -hmm. and we're going to use beer. So when the guest receives this pickle, it tastes like a pickle. Maybe it's more complex. Mm -hmm. It's very crunchy and soft and nice. But our technique to getting there is more of a global technique yeah. uh, based in Japanese tradition. Mm -hmm. you know? But, you know, we do a lot of fermentation and we've been doing it for many years. Growing up, my chicken noodle soup was miso soup from my dad. And... It's interesting when you're doing things because you think they're delicious. You know, your last year, the Noma fermentation book came out and I was like, wow, we've been doing this for a long time. It's nice to be on the upswing of a trend mm -hmm. of something we just thought was delicious mm -hmm. and, you know, get there. So I guess that's the, the way we're doing it. Okay. This dish that you are mentioning, this uh, pickle, do you have that in your tasting menu? This is something you are offering at Amuse? Or? So when we do the tasting menus at Amuse, We asked each guest three questions. We say, what do you love in season? Because we can surely highlight that. Do you have any allergies or intolerances? Because 
first rule is do no harm. You know, we don't want to hurt anybody. Sure. And the last thing is, is there anything you'd rather us stay away from? So in the restaurant, we can be doing five tasting menus and they can all be different. different. And it's, it definitely adds to the complication, but some of the dishes are riffs off of proteins or things that are on the menu. Other things are concepts that were just perfected and kind of the new things that we're working on and very excited about. Some of the dishes, um, if you say I'm a vegan, now everybody at the table has to get the same tasting yeah, sure. menu. But if we do seven course tastings of vegan, or we can do all meat or all seafood or no dairy, or you know, there's a, a vegan no oil, which a doctor, Dean Ornish, is prescribing people for their health. It's really hard to cook without oil, mm-hmm. you know, for my odd reaction, for browning, for things. But I'm a smart enough chef where we can do it. You know, we can make vinaigrettes that are sols with xanthan gum that have no oil, but really beautifully coat the lettuce. Or you know, I have this technique where we take a little bit of white soy sauce and steam with a little bit of water the vegetables. And as it reduces down and caramelizes and helps to brown the vegetables, you know, you can spray the grill and let the oil burn off and then grill mm-hmm. things dry and raw courses. So those are the things that we can do for tasting menus. And when we get whole lamb in, the tenderloin is like this big or the cheeks are this big, you know, and there's only two of them, but we can feature those things on a tasting menu and make four people, six people happy mm-hmm. as opposed to just not having them on the menu. So it allows us to use. It's a lot of logistics in the background though. For you. A lot of logistics. As soon as the order comes in, we talk to the server and we have a, a blank piece of paper. You know, we talk to the server, we say, how's this guest? What are they like? A lot of times people say green light go, chef's choice, dealer's choice, whatever. Other times people are very specific on what their likes and dislikes are. And we call it, you know, we call it for the stations, you know, it's like, okay. And then say maybe the front hotline's getting really beat up at the time. Mm-hmm. Then I can say, okay, backline, we're going to call this crudo tartare dish for the first course, as opposed to doing something just lightly cooked for the first course, wow. energy-wise. So it allows me to, and my sous chef, to have a lot of flexibility. Sure. Sometimes I come up with the best dishes improvisational jazz style. The things that I'm thinking about, I'm like, oh, where did that come from? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it'll be things like, okay, I'm going to write this down because we'll use those things again. Other things, they, they're flavor combinations or dishes that I've used for many years in just in a rethought way, you know, it's like we're discovering some new flavors and some new technique, but every year I look forward to green things in the springtime and like sun energy in the summertime and Mm -hmm. like the transition of fall where you still have some summer ingredients, but then you're getting squashes and root vegetables and density. And then in the wintertime, we're using more of our pickles and ferments and, you know, When I first opened up, I was more militaristic about the only using ingredients in our food shed. Now it's more about sourcing the best things that I can and making the guest happy. We always use citrus. Guests want to see citrus. We always use chocolate. We're Mm -hmm. not growing chocolate in Delaware. I actually have some friends that are growing citrus in Delaware, which is pretty interesting. They use these um, Christmas lights to keep the fruit warm and and wrap the trees in the wintertime. You know, wine, we're sourcing wine from everywhere, of course. But, you know, I think our main proteins, we really still try to utilize the region. And, you know, a lot all of our vegetables, you know, our local farmers can't grow enough onions for us. Mm -hmm. So we're using onions from Canada, Mexico, wherever the onions are coming from. But the things that we're really highlighting, we're really, you know, we work with so many farmers. And each year we, I explore ingredients and I say, hey, will you grow this for me? It's a great thing for all the other chefs in the region as well, because the farmers are growing it and selling to other people. And it's like, I love to see what people are doing with things. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've only ever been in competition with myself. I feel like if I'm paying attention to other people, I'm taking the eye off of my craft and what I'm doing. So, yeah. So let's talk a bit of your, about your creative process, because you're yeah. touching this a little bit now. You know, I'm, I'm curious how do you, you know, approach it and what's your, where your inspiration comes from. So the name of the restaurant is Amuse. Of course, for Amuse-Bouche or the Muse, you know, the inspiration is part of it as well. And the other part of it is I think food should be fun and amusing. When we first opened up with the tasting menu process, each dish had a title. It was an abstract title. 
And they were all inspired by something. One of them was called the Nanakoke Trail, where we used locally grown bison. The Nanakoke are Indians in our area and uh, the native people. And we did a tartar, but we made it similar to Indian food pemmican. And we made edible branches and soil and forged greens. And if you were going to stumble upon this trail and you find the bison, that would be the inspiration behind it. So that was a a dish that was inspired by our local bison farmer, our local people, native people of the Mm -hmm. country. And it was a tartar dish. But so sometimes for me, it, it always has to start with the ingredient because without great ingredients, we cannot make great food. You know, you can't take a a crappy something and make it into something wonderful. So it has to start with these things. But then again, sometimes we're inspired by a technique or a memory. And sometimes those techniques are the things that drive the dish. So it's a... Do you have an example for this? You know, we're getting all kinds of squash recently. You know, it's definitely the squash time of year. Mm -hmm. We're getting buttercup squash and settler crookneck squash, which is like the grandfather to the butternut squash and delicata squash and spaghetti squash. And so right now in the exploration of squash, we think about all the things that we've already cooked with squash. And then we think about how we can change it and how can we make it new? What other textures can we get with squash? And then, so after exploring the ingredient for a day or two Mm -hmm. or taking notes and thinking about it with the team, then we start to pull together a dish. And that's like, you know, off the top of my head, it's hard to think of examples of sometimes it's using the squash skins, taking that and making, using every part of it, taking the seeds and maybe making a sauce or making a paste or using the ash of the skins or flavoring a vinegar for the dressing for it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so it's, it's starting with the ingredients and what is being brought to me. Yesterday for my pop-up and steel, like this is something I like to serve. I served a whelk chowder. Delaware State Shell is the channeled whelk. A whelk is looks, if you're looking at a whelk, it looks like a conch, Mm -hmm. but it's much more tough. And the whelk is Delaware's third biggest fish item that we sell, but nobody in Delaware eats whelk. We all send it to China and to Europe, (laughs) Italy, the squangile, the squangile, the Mm -hmm. conch salad. So for me, I was thinking about, I was getting these beautiful whelk from my local fishermen because they're catching them. And when I cook them, I cook them so that they have the texture of abalone and kind of snails. And they're super meaty and umami filled and savory. So I was thinking about, you know, we have Manhattan chowder, we have New England chowder. What would a Delaware chowder look like? Mm -hmm. So we used a cream-based chowder and we used... The traditional, we put some bacon in it. We use our local seaweeds to flavor with more umami to make it more. And we did a traditional thing where we deglazed it with sherry. So it had that kind of traditional chowder flavor profile. But using the whelk, you know, it's not something that people do in a chowder. It's not something that people commonly see or commonly serve. So that was one way where the ingredient kind of dictated it. But it's serving something that's very familiar to people, you know, to eat a chowder is very familiar, Mm -hmm. but then we were serving it in the beautiful whelk shell with celery root and potato and Jerusalem artichoke. And we were serving it with sea lettuces and seaweed on top and micro celery. So it's a very beautiful presentation, a very common thing, but done in kind of an uncommon. Yeah. So what is more important to you, like technique or creativity? It's hard to think about. I think the most important thing is that people are happy. You know, it's like, (laughs) I think the most important thing is that like, for, I think the younger me would have said the creativity and the technique, because you can't have one without the other. But can you have one before the other? So that's mean, can you be creative if you don't master the technique? I don't think so. I think everything has to be technique without technique. I'm not in a place where I can just put a radish on a plate and serve it. I have to manipulate it. For me, I look at the vegetables as perfect, beautiful things. And how can I not mess that up? How can I deliver it in its peak of flavor? And how can I present it in a way where the guests will enjoy it and really get a sense of what it is? Mm -hmm. How can I not? I think so many young chefs are like trying to impose their will on it with too much technique and trying to put 
too much of a good thing on a plate where it's like, as I cook now, it's really trying to refine, but there needs to be technique. You have to be creative, but creativity has to happen within boundaries because if you're creative for creative sake, you're only going to hit a very small portion of people who are international global diners who Mm -hmm. are looking for those experiences. And my restaurant kind of straddles this line of this awesome neighborhood place where you can come grab a beer and Mm -hmm. some cheese and meet friends, or you can get a tasting menu. You know, we always wanted to serve food, which was really speaking to a time and place in Delaware. But we also wanted to serve food that, you know, there's no tablecloths on our table. There's no pretense. People are coming in from the beach. Mm -hmm. They might be wearing a really, a couple hundred dollar shirt, but a pair of sandals, you know? So it's kind of um, one of these things where we have to cook the food we cook to make people happy. And we have to elevate food, but we still need to do it in a way where people can really feel comfortable and enjoy. They're on vacation. They want to enjoy their experience. They want to taste something and experience something, but they also might just want to get a bite to eat and move on. So. So let's go back in time a little bit. I'm curious what compelled you to, to become a chef. I am dyslexic and ADD. I always worked in kitchens and restaurants. From a very young age, I've always been aware of food and culture and the importance and significance that it's had on people. Some of my earliest childhood flavor memories are vegetarian Indian curries. Uh, we were meditating on ashrams in front of gurus. My dad was a vegetarian. And huh. I remember, you know, I can very clearly remember the first time that I ate sushi in Ithaca, New York. And oh, I remember, oh uh, man, I was in like six, five, oh, wow. seven, you know, and I can clearly remember the Tobiko caviar popping in my mouth and mm-hmm. like how foreign it was to eat this cold fish dish and, and, and the flavor. And I can clearly remember the first time I ate an Ethiopian meal where I sat down on the floor and they gave us this injera and they plopped this food down in front of us. And I remember how oh, that's an interesting place for a chicken bone. That's a weird place for an egg. Those raisins are really sweet and savory with it. So I've always been aware of food. When I got done with high school, you know, I did what you're supposed to do, which was to go to college. I went for a semester for business and communications mm-hmm. and I just wasn't in the right place of my discipline or my learning. I just wasn't in the right place to do it. Sure. was working at outlets. Of course, in the beach, we're in hospitality. Then I was going to rave clubs. I actually got in trouble with the law. I got caught with a hundred pills of ecstasy. I got set up. You know, I, I had more ambition than I had intelligence. And uh, I had to do a six month incarceration jail. Oh, wow. comp. I just had turned 18. It was 17 turning 18. Yep. When I got done with that, I was like, man, I'm smarter than this. I have more energy than this. I'm more talented than this. You know, I need to do something productive with my life, you Mm -hmm. know, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So again, I kept working. First, I was in the front of the house and I, you know, I worked in restaurants, kitchens. I was always aware of food. I was always aware of, of garden. You know, we always had gardens. We always had. So I was a server and they said, oh no, the pantry person isn't (laughs) coming in tonight. Garbage is not here. Can you make salads? I said, yeah, of course I can make salads. You know, I've cooked in restaurants my whole life, you know, and I started doing it. And I was like, really, I was the kid who was like playing with the Skittles growing up, making beautiful patterns with them. And I've always been very good with my hands plating. and I've always, yeah, always been good with my mind in like figuring out puzzles. And I started plating these salads and I said, hurry up. You're plating them too slowly. Stop making love to food. And I said, all I want to do is make love to food. So in the end of the day, it was like, um, I didn't find cooking. It refound me. Okay. And, and it I grounded you, I guess. Yeah. And I started doing it and I was like, wow, I'm naturally good at this. And I enjoy doing it. Working in kitchens as a young person was great. It's like, I'm on a pirate ship. I got scurvy knaves around me. We can play with knives and fire. There's lots of women and booze and late nights. So <laughs> It was a it was a very fun thing for me to do in that way as well. And I, I really enjoyed the work. So I came up through kitchens very quickly. By the time I was like 24, I was a chef mm-hmm. and I was managing lots of money. And I had learned all I could on my own from teachers and mentors. I read all the books. I cooked through every recipe. I And then I said, okay, 
Now I need to go to culinary school. So I went to Walnut Hill College in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. where I graduated amongst the top of my class while working eight days a week, living in Delaware, opening a restaurant in DC, traveling for you know two years straight, working every day. And at the time I was like, wow, this is a lot of traveling. It's a lot. But the teacher stopped calling on me because I knew all the answers. So I became a teacher's aide. I, <laughs> I helped my students around me, you mm-hmm. know, because that's what a good chef does. A good chef is like teaching people that are around them and, and helping other people realize their goals. And really that process of culinary school, I already knew how to make, I already knew how to deglaze bones. I already knew how to make, you know, I, I'd already mastered a lot of those techniques, but it taught me the discipline of, you know, as an owner of businesses and a, as a father, I, I just go all the time and it kind of helped me set that up and it helped me set that, you know, that's the discipline you need as a chef. That's the discipline you need to, you know, when you get done with work, you might not want to write that email. You might not want to write those recipes. You might not want to do that consulting job or write this creative thing, mm-hmm. but if you don't do it, it won't get done. Sure. And uh, you just got to keep pressing on. So culinary school was a great, you know, I went to Philadelphia I grew up in Washington, D.C. in New York City, but Philadelphia was the town where I spent the most time as a mid-20s person. Mm-hmm. Philadelphia is near to my heart. I have a lot of friends who are chefs there now. D.C. I love. You know, New York I love. It's, it's all good. So I, And then for me, the next thing is, like I said, setting goals for myself. I knew what I wanted. I wasn't the chef who worked under Daniel Hume. I wasn't the chef who worked under Blude or Keller, but I knew, so I started staging at a lot of places around the world. I started, I was making money. So I started eating at lots of Michelin star restaurants, mm-hmm. traveling. My, well, my best friend, his name is Bryce Schumann, one of my best friends. And he was the executive sous chef at 11 Madison park. So I got to go there and hang out with him mm-hmm. quite a bit and eat there a lot. And then he went on to open a restaurant called Bettany, which was very great. Mm-hmm. And um, then my little brother, who is also a chef. He's currently a chef in Bangkok, where he's on chef of the top two floors of one of the tallest buildings mm-hmm. in Bangkok. And he's worked at so many Michelin star places. And he always wanted to be a chef. When a little kid, when we were little kids, we were like, Josh, turn off the cooking channel. We don't want to watch that anymore, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, he's super intelligent. You know, someday, if he's not already, he'll be much better. And his name's Josh Cameron. Um, he's my uh, taller, faster, better looking <laughs> chef me, you know, but he never had been as grounded as I have been. I've been kind of pushing for a lot of years, you mm-hmm. know, and kind of refining and kind of very stable and steady in my approach where he worked at Oscar and he worked at a lot of, you know, he, he worked at a lot of places and pursued a lot of things to get him to his chef mm-hmm. job, you know, where for me, it was, when I went to culinary school, I was like, oh, this is great. There's going to be people that are just like me. And it wasn't the case. You know, there's a lot of people who were young people who have never cooked before, people who were changing careers from something else. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I just could do it. And uh, I was always asking my culinary teachers, why? Like, mm-hmm. I understand this recipe. Sure. Why are we cooking this way? Yeah. They said, shut up, kid. Do it the way you're told, you know, exactly. you got to do it this way. You know, yeah, exactly. and for me, it's like, um, with the modernist cuisine, you know, the modernist mm-hmm. perspective, it's like, it's looking at everything and understanding the science behind it, understanding the art, behind mm-hmm. it, understanding the culture and presenting it in a way, you know, if we look at Ferranadria, it's not all about foam, but it's about process. Mm-hmm. It's about how he interpreted ingredients and reimagined texture when we look at Rene Renzappi, it's not all about the forged ingredients. It's about him displaying the ingredients. He is a, such a modern chef where he's not using every hydrocolloid. He's not using every technique, but it's very forward thinking in his approach. And he's really representing the Nordic. I think those are the things that we're trying to do in the Mid-Atlantic. We're trying to cook our own food, which is true to us, that makes us happy while making the guest happy, while highlighting all of the uh, natural, beautiful ingredients of of our region. So. Okay. And um, I mean, you're talking about Spain, you're talking in reference in uh, Denmark here. Do you think today there's other, let's say, horizon and other countries that maybe chefs should look, at, look to? Man, I think that the whole continent of Africa is 
overlooked at every point in time. There are chefs that are, you know, with the information exchange that we have right now, you know, I've been, I traveled in Thailand and Myanmar for a month and a half. The things they're doing in Mod Oz is great. I think mm-hmm. South America is crushing the game right now in, in their forward thinking and an approach. And I think that like with the information exchange that we have right now as a, as a, a world, a globalized mm-hmm. world, I can so easily connect with chefs everywhere through social media, through I have friends that are everywhere. And, um, you know, I don't have Michelin stars, you know, they don't come to Delaware, but when we put out plates of food, we're confident with the food we're cooking as any good as anywhere else in the world, you know, and as a progressive thing. And I think that you can go to a lot of towns in this country now Mm -hmm. and get really great meals where that wasn't always the case here in America. I think globally there are chefs that are just cooking great food everywhere. So talking about uh, creativity and ingredients, what are the latest ingredients that you are obsessed with? So lately I've been making a lot of white soy sauces and kind of Koji assisted products. My friend, his name is Rich G. He has a blog called Our Cook Quest. For a couple of years now, he's really, and also Jeremy Umansky, they're building this kind of Koji community. I really like savory, you know, and I try to find savory things things that are high in glutamates naturally derived from seaweed or mushrooms or things. But, you know, I've um, made these white soy sauces where I koji inoculate them. And, you know, I don't want it to taste like Japanese food. I don't want it to be that type of soy. But when you add a couple of drops of, you know, garum or, you know, this is such old technique from ancient mm-hmm. Rome or China, Japan, you know, that area that when you add a couple of drops of that, it really kind of deepens the food in umami and makes it. So I think umami obsession is an interesting thing mm-hmm. for me. Every time I have, um, you know, a guest on the show, I ask them about a suggestion for like a home cook. There's a lot of foodies that are, you know, listening to the podcast. And I thought that I would ask you because of uh, Grandpa Mac, mm-hmm. maybe how would you suggest to make like for a home cook to make like a gourmet mac and cheese? What kind of spin would you suggest to? Um, yeah. So you can get fresh pasta from so many different makers right now. Even if you don't have a home extruder, it's pretty easy <laughs> to get fresh pasta. Yeah. So I think it, you start with the pasta. If you're using dried pasta, that's fine. I think there's a place for that as well. Next thing I think is... Um, Thinking about your cheese selection, I think that um, you need some depth in your cheese. So using a couple different cheese, mm-hmm. depending on if it's white or yellow, you know, I think Gruyere adds some really nice nuttiness. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Fontina, some depth, you know, so really understanding your cheeses, white cheddar, of course, some different ages on things. It's kind of the classic. And then um, I don't think flour is needed. I think that if you are a home cook and you use sour salt, it's called sodium citrate. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's different things that are like that. You can make any cheese into the perfect melting consistency, like Velveeta, like mm-hmm. the perfect mac and cheese cheese. So you use 9 to 12% of that by total weight of cheese. I think you need some acid in there. You know, some people use mustard as their acid. Some people use, mm-hmm. I think, using an alcoholic cider would be nice, kind of like doing a fondue play. Or I think that using a beer would be interesting. So I think that using... I think that when you can add a little acidity Mm -hmm. to help cut through the fat, the mustard's nice because it adds that kind of spice as well. Mm -hmm. Tabasco's nice. Mm -hmm. Tabasco's a vinegar-based hot sauce. So, of course, it has that kind of brightness that you're looking Mm -hmm. for. You know, nutmeg would make it more, you know, the Italian bechamel, like the kind of, but not needed, you know, any spices you want. So I think that a, a nicely dressed pasta is like a nicely dressed salad. You know, you don't want too much dressing you eat a salad you don't want it to be soggy when you're making pasta you want it to be nicely sauced and kind of evenly coated okay. understanding the consistency of your sauce and you don't need to bake it or you could bake it if you're a home cook i think one of the best mac and cheeses you can make is cacio pepe i think that uh if you have some parmesan yeah. if you have olive oil or butter pasta water and black pepper and a good pasta i think that if you're emulsification technique is good 
you can make a beautiful, it's not mac and cheese, but it's so simple. You know, it's really all about the emulsification. You know, you cook your pasta. I like a nice toasted pepper, which I'll toast it in the pan. Then I'll add some pasta water and I'll let that infuse. Then add maybe a pat of butter and a little bit of Parmesan. And then Parmesan Reggiano, the king of cheeses, Mm -hmm. super umami, super depth and flavor. Then you add your pasta to this, maybe slightly al dente undercooked. Then you're maybe adding more cheese and then you're looking at your pasta water and you're really tossing it. You're creating this kind of strangular emulsion with the starchy pasta water and the cheese. And it just creates this such beautiful, you know, so simple, but this beautiful sauce that coats your pasta. And Thank you. That's mac and cheese to me. Absolutely. I'm going to try that for sure. So chef, I'm looking at the time and we have been, uh, or you have been talking, you know, for, for, for a while now. So I have to be conscious of your time as well. Uh, I just want to finish with rapid fire questions, if you don't mind. So um, I know that you are reading, you mentioned uh, a lot of cookbooks. So what are your maybe top two, top three reference cookbook that inspired you the most? So when you're looking at cookbooks, the Flavor Bible, mm-hmm. Paige and Dornberg, I think that's essential for any cook, young cook, old cook. I think that's just such a great book. Uh, Lurus Gastronomie. I think that when you're looking at classics, you need to yeah. understand technique and understand we can't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. Yeah. I think if you're talking about the classic cookbooks, you're talking about the French Laundry cookbook. Yeah. That was the cookbook, which was the cookbook. You know, when I, a lot of chefs talk to me about that. When yeah. I, before I, you know, it was one of my first cookbooks I owned. And when I learned about the French Laundry cookbook, you know, chinois your sauce 40 times as it's going from pot to pot, all of the precision of the technique, you know, Chef Thomas Keller took American food, which was French based and was really the premier American chef who the world started being like, huh, maybe those Americans aren't all just greasy spoons down over there. <laughs> so. Okay. Kitchen pet peeves. What drives you crazy in the kitchen? Unconscientious sloppy work. When a cook has the towel on their station, which they just use and they just drop the towel down instead of having it nice, you know, dull knives, bad attitudes. You know, it's like we're all doing a job. It can be as stressful as it wants to be, but I've never been this yelling chef. Like if I yell, people will really take notice because if you don't yell, if if you do and when you do, people will really, you know, I need to pull people aside and say, hey, bud, we're all working hard here. You got to do better. Mm -hmm. It's one thing, but. You can't teach attitude and everybody has things that are shitty that are going on in their life, but it's kind of like you can check those things at the door and you can deal with them. And, but when you come to work, come to work. Okay. You said once that working in the kitchen is like running a marathon. So how do you get ramp up for service? So I'm really ADD. I'll ramp up for service. You know, sometimes I'll go down and take a walk and look at the ocean really quickly just to Mm -hmm. kind of clear my head. I work long hours, so it's kind of like I can go do that. We listen to this one sometimes. We don't listen. We listen to music sometimes when we prep. There's a girl talk, a night ripper, and it's kind of like workout music we'll listen to right before service to kind of get pumped up sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, That happened. Big nights especially. I guess communication with everybody, getting like, going around to everybody and saying, how are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. making sure everybody's on the same page, making sure everybody has what they need and meditation, you know, grounding myself, taking five minutes and just like breathing and being still. So when I open my eyes again, I can go back clear and focused. What's your top food travel destinations? Man, I'm in one of them. New York city is killer. Yeah. New York city has everything. And like, we're not just talking about like Brooklyn or Manhattan, you know, there's just great food everywhere. Queens Chinatown, I love. I love, you know, going to Thailand. I'm friends with a man named Chef McDang. He's a very famous chef in Thailand. And uh, going there, he's loved. When we ate, they showered him with everything on the menu. So eating through Thai food was really eye opening and wonderful. You know, I love the round way they cook with spices and flavors. I love San Francisco. I could eat in San Francisco in that, that area for a month. And I, I'm talking just at like, fine dining and nice restaurants. And then I could eat all of the tacos and everything else that's there as well. I love, I went on my honeymoon to Vancouver, British Columbia, and we stayed at a place called the Sook Harbor house. I think that was awesome. Yeah. 
there, there's DC, you know, I go to DC often, yeah. Philadelphia often, you have friends there. I don't know. There's great cool. food everywhere. Last question. What's the worst dish you ever created? The worst dish I ever created. Let me think about that. I create the worst dish I ever created often. It just doesn't get served. You know, <laughs> it's like the worst dish I ever created. Let me think about it. It's hard to think about fails. You know, it's like the things sure. that we should pay the most attention to. Yeah. But we thankfully forget them. I think I did a, a tripe and oyster dish one time that I tripe tried. Tripe and oyster. It was wow. like, it was from the White House cookbook. And I, I made this beautiful tripe terrine, which I sliced. Mm -hmm. And then I used oysters and emulsion. And I thought it was delicious, but nobody else did. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, it was still, it still had value, but it was like, yeah, nobody's ordering that. But it was all good though. <laughs> okay. It was inspired, but maybe not by the right things. So. <laughs> Okay, Chef, thank you so much for being a guest on uh, Flavors Unknown. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Honored to be here. Cheers. Thank you. I have to say, after recording this episode with Chef Harry Cameron, I am ready to jump in my car, drive south to Cape May, take the ferry, and get to Rehoboth Beach. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or a colleague, as I always welcome new listeners to the show. My website is flavorsunknown.com. You will find the show notes of this episode on the episode page. Please, please, please subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. On the next episode, I will have Chef Brother Luck from Colorado City on the show. I'll see you in two weeks. And until then, remember, people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.